0: So I am extremely honored to be joined by our guest today. He was among the first libertarian activists in the early 70s. He was a publisher for a libertarian objectivist paper named The New Banner. In 1971, he was lucky enough to interview Murray Rothbard, which inspired an academic thesis um, that would later be submitted in 1972 for a graduate degree, graduate degree. Against Rothbard's wishes, our guest left academia in 1975, joined the stock brokerage firm EF Hutton in the Commodity Division. Uh, This is where he apprenticed under David Johnson, the head of the Commodities Division at EF Hutton and the chair of the COMEX, uh, which is the primary futures and op- options uh, market for trading precious metals. Uh, in 1992, he started Momentum Structural Analysis, a company that provides technical research services to financial and asset management clients. <clears throat> Excuse me. Since, since he submitted his uh, academic thesis in 1972, It has become available for purchase. Uh, There is a link in the episode description. The New Libertarianism, Anarcho-Capitalism, which has become, as David Gordon of the Mises Institute puts it, a distinguished addition to libertarian thought. Whether you are new to this philosophy or you were very familiar, The New Libertarianism is a book I cannot recommend enough to have on your bookshelf. Without further ado, Michael Oliver. Thank you for being here today, Michael. How are you doing? Thank you, Jacob. Uh, it's a real pleasure to get you on. And uh, yeah, um, we, we were kind of talking off camera a little bit that uh, that book is now 50 years old.
1: Correct. <laughs> it's. Uh, I look back on it. Uh, it was a, a fun project. It's not a big book. It's like 170 pages, but it deals with a marriage of basic concepts of Ayn Rand's philosophy, objectivism, married with uh, Rothbard's economics and politics, uh, anarcho-capitalism. Now Rand was a anti-libertarian, meaning she was for limited government. She was a founding father's woman. She thought they were great. Remember she came over as a young woman from Russia, so that seemed great to her, right? She never got over that. I think it was an intellectual error. And it was, if you take her basic philosophical concepts, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and so forth, and take them up the ladder in terms of forming concepts from it. When you get to politics, you should not arrive at a conclusion that we need a monopoly of force in the country. That conclusion doesn't fit with all the other basic principles underlying her philosophy. Instead, what Rothbard was teaching uh, and why he is, Now become quite famous, you know, in the history of libertarian ideas. Uh, And in fact, he used to be part of Ayn Rand's inner group, the so-called collective, which, as we know, like uh, for example, uh, Greenspan was a member of. Uh, But he was booted out by Rand because I I believe, as the argument is, that his wife was, uh, I believe, Catholic or Jewish. I'm not sure. I think Catholic, and Rockbard wouldn't denounce religion. He was not an atheist. Okay. And I think that that split him up. Plus, Rand didn't like his his radical libertarianism because it it deviated from her notion of limited government. Uh, So my book deals with the continuity of her ideas, but not leading to where she wanted to go on the political and political concepts. Instead, it leads more rationally to what Rothbard was teaching. Uh, And it all fits together nicely uh, if you just chop off her politics from her look (laughs) And put Rothbard on top. So I've married Rand with Rothbard. In effect, uh, the ideas made sense to me 50 years ago when I wrote it. They still make sense, and I'm glad it's you know it's appreciated. Uh, now I know there's still a division among objectivists in this country and libertarians, like Leonard Peikoff, you know, uh, mm-hmm. continuation of Ayn Rand's orthodoxy uh, is very much anti-libertarian. And, uh, but th- th- it makes no sense. And I see over time more and more, uh, even the Mises Institute, for example, I think at some point in the past, not so much anymore, uh, was really not friendly to objectivists. Mm-hmm. Objectivists weren't friendly to them, you know, to uh, radical libertarianism. But over time, I think they have realized uh, that the two ideas, in fact, do melt well if you lobotomize her politics from philosophical structure. So that's basically what the book deals with is the the ideas in structure uh, and why if you're an objectivist you should conclude libertarian outcome not limited government. So Uh, it's the 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 logical conclusion of the philosophy. It's it's illogical. It's not you know it's not a leap of faith. In fact going to limited government's a leap of faith when you take her basic (laughs) concepts. It doesn't have continuity with her basic concepts. Yeah
0: so one argument I, I typically hear is that, um, you know, we we need somebody to be able to protect the borders. We need um, basic police force. These sorts of things, and that's that's typically the minarchist mm-hmm. argument that I that I hear. Um, you know, what what would you say to somebody that has that kind of a well, it's stance?
1: A, it's a legitimate concerned to be concerned about one's safety against aggression. But, you know, there's no such thing as the border, unless we're talking about your particular piece of property. That's yours. That's your border, yeah. you know, what you own. But this notion of a national sovereign border, whatever that means, you know, the sovereign yeah. country, Ukraine. what's sovereign mean? Did God come down and bless it or something? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's an arbitrary political thing, and they change over time. I mean, if they're so sovereign, how come the borders of nations change constantly through history? Okay, yeah. you know, somebody came in and decided differently. Uh, but the collective notion of what's a border, what's not a border, who can come in, who not, who cannot—that's ridiculous. As long as who's ever tra- tra- crossing the quote border is not committing aggression, you know. Uh, so anyway, that that argument just doesn't hold up. Um, but the notion that you need defense mechanisms is a valid concept. Uh, there could always be an aggressor or a group of aggressors. Uh, in our world today, most of the aggressors are in fact created by government. If you think about the drug gangs, there wouldn't be drug gangs if they did uh, you know, outlaw drugs. If they all if they outlawed comic books, there would be comic book gangs, okay? Mm-hmm. It's, it's It's a ludicrous concept. But there is the valid notion of having a means of defense that's quite valid. Uh, in fact, we see it in our society. If you go to a shopping center, it's often not a, a, a government cop in the shopping center, it's a private cop patrolling around probably even without a gun, you know. Uh, so the notion of private defense is, is a very valid notion, You know, having your own self-defense mechanism at your own home or hiring a specialist who can do that more efficiently than you can and more thoroughly than you can. That was private security forces. Mm-hmm. Security devices you can buy and so forth. These are all defense mechanisms, and the free market would provide them. In fact, it does provide them. Uh, in in a sense, even mercenary armies are, to some extent, a more efficient way. If you're going to have a, if you have an aggressor coming at you who's a statist, and who is, I've often wondered why, for example, in some of these African countries where we hear these uh, armies coming in and massacring a lot of people, why is it that the the multimillionaire, billionaire businessmen in those given countries, in order to have a stable economy and society, don't sort of get together and hire a mercenary army to take down some of these aggressor forces, rather than relying on their own government to do or not to do it. Uh, so I think the evolution in a free society could go all kinds of different ways in terms of satisfying that need. There could be a micro level or a macro level, The defense forces... Uh, mercenary Army, for example, uh, the movie Dogs of War, I always appreciate. Uh, it's, it's usually, if it's run by a business, it's more efficient than a government would run it anyway. Uh, and the notion that only government knows right from wrong type of behavior in terms of how how much force do you apply against an aggressor and in what manner, that's a false notion. We all know that governments massacre civilians all the time, and supposedly trying to halt an aggressor force. Uh, I, you know, pardon me for saying it, but uh, you know who, who is the country that nukes civilians? We did. Yeah. You know, Truman didn't bomb the naval force out in some harbor in Japan and demonstrate the lethal power of our nuclear weapons by blowing up some ships in the harbor. Instead, he dumped them on the city, private civilians. Was that really the most efficient way to bring the Japanese to a halt? Uh, Examples of that are across the globe all the time. Um, So anyway, I think in a free market world, you would have both in a micro level and a larger level, such services available on demand. It would be far more efficient and certainly wouldn't tax you to do it. In fact, the defense forces might finance themselves by extracting The funds from the aggressor. In fact, that makes sense, right? If somebody aggression drives their car into your car negligently, you know we sue them, correct? Okay. Well, if somebody aggresses against you, causes damage, whether it's on an individual basis or a collective basis, they're the ones responsible. You shouldn't have to pay for your own defense. Now, you might want to do it initially, but you know once there's extreme costs, it's on their shoulders. And so you you might even have a situation in a free society where uh, some of these defense costs would be covered by the aggressor, not you. So it's hard to predict how these things could evolve, and it's not important to predict, because that's what planners do. The market would determine these things on a micro basis over time.
0: Well, and that's, that's one thing that I've never really really enjoyed uh speaking to uh statist or even minarchist or anything is it come the the argument always comes down to uh well what about this what about this what about this and they want to be able to pick apart every little situation um and i i view it as a way to to basically just ignore the larger picture um i i can't imagine too many people had a uh, you know the idea of our modern combines in mind when they were freeing the slaves because i guarantee that there were some people you know uh, how are we going to pick the cotton now like, well you know the market figured it out and created the uh, farming equipment that we have today um, I, I just have a hard time believing that anyone foresaw um, what the market was able to do with that
1: yeah, in my book, I de- when I deal with these uh, future possibilities, uh, the evolution of defense forces and so forth, I don't try to be specific. In fact, I say it up front. This is exploratory. And to some extent, you know, it, it's guesswork. It's not important that you predefine exactly how these processes would unfold. The market will determine that because all of them are unique. You know, you might have a unique situation of defense against somebody in another part of the country their needs, uh, or another part of the world. So these things would evolve to try to predict them as to what the status do. They impose from above their notions of this is what should be done. Let the market determine it. Uh, it's far more efficient that way. So one
0: thing I'm curious about, um, how, how does it feel to know that um, not not only myself, but there there's definitely some others uh, that view your book as a very welcomed addition to the collective of libertarian thought. Uh, which you you had mentioned earlier that uh, you're not involved with the party, uh, and you haven't been for quite some time. And even back then, there was you know not necessarily bad blood, but there was friction. Um, so so how does it feel knowing that uh, something has lasted the test of time.
1: Well, it's uh, you know I I don't give myself so much credit. I just sort of integrated the thoughts, and uh, it just made sense to me that these two great people, and I was fortunate one to spend time with Rothbard, uh, one day only, uh, but it was a very fun day, uh, and communicate with him afterwards. And by sheer chance, uh, I met Rand. Uh, We lived in, uh, when I first went to work for Hutton in 1975, we lived about two, three blocks from where Rand lived. I sort of knew she lived in that part of New York, Midtown. And I didn't know specifically where nor know who to ask. But one day we were, my wife worked at the Empire State Building. We were coming home just walking because we only lived about five blocks from that building. And we stopped at a corner and it crossed over when it said to cross. And Janet looked back because she had a double take of a man who was standing there that looked sort of like a Gary Cooper type figure. She'd never seen a picture of Frank O'Connor, Rand's husband, but she'd she'd heard the description. And this guy looked like what Frank O'Connor would look like. when she turned around and looked back, then she saw Rand's face. And Barbara Weiss was with them. that's Rand's secretary at the time uh, and the objectivist. So we went back across the street with our throats a little tight. and said hello, uh, and we spoke for all of about 60 seconds, I didn't intrude, uh, we were sort of awestruck. And uh, she was a very lovely woman, it chatted with us nicely. Um, and then we head, headed back to our apartment and uh, went to the grocery store and said, what are we doing in this grocery store? And so I went home and we typed. I typed up a letter because I noticed where Rand entered a building. So I knew where she lived. and. Uh, I, we, I dropped the letter off to the doorman of the building and, and we did get an answer about a week later and it's now framed on my wall. She turned me down for the dinner, but it was fr- through her secretary, Barbara Weiss, who said, Miss Rand does not accept invitations from people she doesn't know and it's fine. <laughs> That's great. But I got the letter to, uh, as a memory of uh, the meeting with Rand. Uh, that was in 1976, I think it was. Uh, anyway, so it was great to have met both people. And, and to integrate their ideas. But, you know, I really didn't do more than integrate what they had done and, and make sense out of the pieces that fit together.
0: Well, and I, I can definitely say through personal experience that, uh, you know, there, there's still people uh, struggling putting those pieces together. Um, they'll probably never make it there. And, you know, it's not my life, but, it's right. um, I, I do enjoy the conversations I have um with them and uh your your book has definitely armed me with some of these conclusions that uh are, are very difficult to argue. So I definitely
1: appreciate yeah, one of the, you for one that. One of the virtues of the book is it's short. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not a yeah. tome.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um so let's let's uh move on just a little bit further. So you you had ended up leaving the party and left academia and ended up working in the stock market, correct?
1: Well, and the, the gold side, uh, the commodity side. And the reason I left academia was uh, one, in 1974, when I quit PhD work, um, I realized we we're in a global recession, depression at that time. And even some tenured professors weren't getting treated right. You know, And I said, besides as a libertarian at that point in time, uh, getting into academia and political science, let's say, it w- would have been tough. I mean, you, you didn't fit. Not many schools. Did. Now, it's not true anymore. There's quite a few libertarians uh, uh, in academia. You know, I'd say hundreds, hundreds now. So it's, it's grown in influence. But back then, it would be a rarity. And therefore, it really wasn't a future for me, financially speaking. Uh, and I love gold. For the obvious reasons that most libertarians do, and that is, it's it's, it's the most objective money on the planet. You know, you, you could be an alien and land in the middle of Africa a hundred years ago or in Europe, and gold would have been accepted by yeah. any society. You know, uh, and it's still true today, and it's going to become more true in the coming months as fiat currencies, uh, I think, are facing now. They're not just an isolated event here and there, but a mutual collapse. In terms of integrity by integrity i mean in terms of their value the continuity of value which is depreciating rapidly it's a, a mere competition between the us eu and japan as to which currency degrades more rapidly you know ours doubles in supply every decade m2 money supply since yeah. 1959 basically every decade double in quantity of money well i mean no wonder a loaf of bread when i was a kid was like you know under 20 cents would have we had a wheat drought or something, and now suddenly it's three bucks? No, it's the degradation of money over time, and now the degradation has increased rapidly over the last couple of years to the extent where it's it's five times that rate of increase. Their excuse being COVID, uh, but regardless, they've always had an excuse. That's why it's doubled every decade. So the money is, you know, it's to some extent it's competing garbage. Uh, Gold, on the other hand, holds its value. If you go back 50 years and say, where was gold then? And where was it 10 years later? Where was it 10 years later? It's held its value. Unlike the dollar, the the gold has held its value. That's why it's 2000 bucks now, not 30. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Anyway, uh, so I got into the gold side of the futures business because of that intellectual reason. But then I soon learned technical analysis, orthodox technical analysis. You know, people look at price charts, stuff like that. You know, when you open the Wall Street Journal, there's some price charts with moving averages later. And so forth. That's not what we do. We I've developed a methodology that is technically unique. It's been around now for 30 years. 1992, I founded MSA. And we service financial institutions, hedge funds, uh, family offices, and individual investors in terms of analyzing the four major asset categories in the world. That's foreign exchange, stock markets, commodities, and the debt markets. Because they all fit together, they all impact one another. And so, but right now in my, well, since 1975, and the the years since then, I've never seen a a confluence of events and trends that looks so disastrous, but actually good. Because when I say disastrous, I mean it will unwind all kinds of errors that have been committed and compounded over the last, especially 50 years of government policy under Republicans and Democrats. Now, Nixon is the one who took the dollar off of the gold standard internationally speaking. Roosevelt took it off domestically. But Nixon, a quote Republican conservative, detached the dollar internationally from gold. Made um,
0: let's let's not forget Woodrow Wilson.
1: <laughs> yeah, Woodrow, another nice guy. Anyway, <laughs> but the state has be on both sides. They're not just Democrats. Okay, look no. back through history here. Uh in fact, you know, a, a recent Republican president was a big advocate of uh, getting our interest rates down to below the European rates. Trump said to the Fed before COVID ever occurred, "Take our interest rates to zero. We're going to compete with the Europeans, the EU." Yeah. Free market advocate doesn't tell a coercive monetary body to take interest rates to free Money's free. OK, uh, that sounds like something that. Uh, Paul Krugman might do, you know, who supposedly hated Trump, he could have been Trump's economic advisor. They fit together quite well. Uh, so, you know, the, the Republicans have also had their impact on helping to destroy Society and grow government, and uh, the I think that we're a point now where the confluence of events and trends is about to impact everybody from the one percenters all the way down. This is not going to be a narrow; it's going to hurt the one percenters badly because their stock market has begun a bear trend. In our assessment, a major bear trend. It's the biggest stock market bubble in the history of the uh, stock market in terms of how many years of vertical action and how steep that verticality was in percentage terms. It's never been that like that, ever. Makes 1929 look like nothing. Uh, So what, what exactly is causing all of this? Primarily government's monetary policy, and they use monetary policy, of course, to support the things they need to support, like their own budgets. It's not taxes that pay for government. It's the Federal Reserve buys their debt. And they're going to especially have to do that in the coming years because the bond market, the U.S. government bond market is now starting to implode along with private debt. Uh, Also, muni bonds are starting to implode. The yields are going up, prices are going down, in other words, Uh, and as that happens, it spooks people from the bond market. Instead of it being a stable place to put your money safe, you're losing ground drastically uh, in terms of the value of the the bonds you bought. Um, And that process is not about to end. Our assessment is the bear market has just begun, not just in stocks, but in the bond market as well. And so who's going to buy those bonds? The Chinese are backing out of our market. The Russians are backed out of buying our market. Ultimately, the Fed's going to have to buy it, Uh, in which case, where are they going to get the money? They're going to make the money. So monetary expansion will continue. And of course, then they support the government, not taxes. Uh, In fact, we wouldn't be surprised, uh, about a year or so ago, we put out a report Suggesting certain terms be thought about, certain words, words we'd not heard since high school discussing the Civil War, the word secession. Now, it's popped up occasionally, not just not just by the way from people who want to secede from big government states like the secession movement in the state of Washington. Ted Cruz in Texas suggested if uh, certain things don't go right, you know we might consider secession, meaning Texas. He wasn't joking. Uh, there's a county here in Northern Colorado, Weld County, which I'm building a home in, uh, south of the Wyoming border that wants to secede and join Wyoming. No tax state. Uh, the talk of secessions popping up here and there, not just here but around the world. Uh, And to some extent, that's what Putin's trying to prevent. (laughs) Certain countries being seceded from their traditional uh, convergence with the old Soviet Union. Uh, So, you know, he's fighting secession, too, in that that regard. Uh, And trying to bring back in certain provinces of the Ukraine into Russia, to keep, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the secession issue is going to pop up globally. And to some extent, it's good because it means fragmentation. And fragmentation means what? It means those people in a certain area who don't like the policies that are going on in the larger area can revert. In effect, it's like, like a free market mechanism, they can create a less taxed society. Uh, you're seeing, in effect, individual secession by large taxpayers in California, in New York City, going where? Well, in California, they've been flooding to Arizona, a far less tax state, or flooding to Colorado, or flooding to Wyoming. You're seeing New Yorkers flooding to Florida, no tax state. So, in effect, it's an individual secession movement there, uh, and some of these more groupified secessions are likely to occur in the coming, especially next year or two, I think, because of the economic turbulence we're seeing. Uh, those type of things can occur. And also on the issue of funding the government. Uh, I'm not saying there's going to be a tax rebellion, but there's a point at which individuals, let's say lower middle class or middle class on down, get pinched so badly by their tax bill because of the, the declining economy, for example, which is about to occur very suddenly here in the next, I'd say six to nine months, to where all these economic numbers we're used to having the government tell us are good like unemployment rate and so forth, suddenly change because the rug comes out from under a lot of things. And therefore, when that occurs again, and we're back into another 2008, the American public is not in this position they were then in terms of supporting the tax bills. So yeah. you're really going to have a situation where a lot of people simply have to request a payment plan, meaning that the IRS is not going to get their money on the calendar date they expected And their flow of revenue from taxes is going to diminish to the point where where you might have delinquencies, non-filers, the percentage of non-filers suddenly jumps to a level that might be impossible to service. Even 10 percent of, let's say, 10 percent of the taxpayers couldn't pay their taxes, let's say, in the coming year. Then they're going to have to do something. And I suspect, and I think it was Stephen Moore who was under Trump at the time, suggested national sales tax so it wouldn't shock me that at some point if tax collection becomes a problem simply because of economic reasons that the government abandons taxes and says okay we'll go to national sales tax heck it's even been promoted by a so-called free market guy under trump so it wouldn't surprise me so all these type of events that are going on will have domino effects in all kinds of areas including our definition of what's a state boundary or definition of how the government's gonna collect its taxes, et cetera, et cetera. All kinds of potential dominoes could fall. They're almost unpredictable. But they're all related to some extent to causal factors. So
0: one one question. Um it it pretty much seems like the Fed is just constantly printing um and uh we, we've reached a level of debt in this country and unfunded liabilities that it, it, it's just, I, I remember. So I was actually born in 92. Um, so, you know, I was, I was young, but I was aware, uh, during Bush's presidency. And I remember the, the, the talking heads on the TV talking about, um, you know, reaching nine trillion, uh, eight, nine trillion, 10 trillion, and it it just being unthinkable. And now we're past 30. Mm -hmm. So what has um, things like uh, the the stimulus checks that everyone received and wanted so badly, uh, how negatively has that affected the market?
1: Well, it's all part of the the same cascade, and I think the debt is one of the the major factors here, and that means government, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's on a parabolic course now. In other words, what was incremental doubling every decade, for example, now suddenly we're we're starting to go vertical, including the government debt, for example, as you pointed out. And it doesn't matter who's president. Debt under Trump went parabolic, okay? So- uh, don't don't blame it on either party. It's all part of. You know, I, I visualize it as a totem pole, for the, especially since LBJ. Maybe even go back to Roosevelt, but especially since LBJ's War on Poverty. But there's this big totem pole, and there's two snakes writhing around the totem pole, rising to the top as the, as the pole grows over the years, the size of government. One yeah. snake is a Democrat, the other's Republican, and it really doesn't much matter. Both of them contribute to the growth of the state. You know, whether it's by massive military spending or urging the Fed to cut rates to zero or, what, or something that Biden or, or Obama might do in terms of spending. But it, it's, a, it's a constant course. It doesn't really change trend. It may dip here and there, but really nothing, neither party has altered the direction. And unfortunately, the LP has not been able to ascend to a level where they compete with these two parties. Now, maybe we're going to have a fraction of the two parties. I think it's quite possible which could help perhaps generate third parties they are viable. And I think the LP would definitely be a most viable third party. And to some extent, Trump has helped in that process in that he has fractured what used to be a conservative intellectual party. Think of Barry Goldwater, for example, you know, continuity of ideas, or maybe even Reagan. But since Trump, the party is split between basically his followers who are Trumpists, not ideological conservatives, and the old GOP, the ideological conservatives. So that party's been fractured. And to some extent that might be good, because frankly, these two parties have not, the Republican Party has not altered the course of events. It's merely been one of the two snakes around the totem pole. So fragmentation and fracturing could be good. And the economic events that you, you mentioned, they could be good, too, because they expose the contradictions that have been built up over decades. They expose the errors, and they suggest to people, to some people, and probably to more <laughs> people over time, that, hey, this isn't working. It would not shock me in the next couple of years that soon yeah. that there's a sufficient number of academicians, and I don't mean just Austrian economist types. But others who say, you know, this Federal Reserve thing is only 100 years old, one human lifetime, really, okay? Uh, It hasn't really worked. They've created boom-bust cycles. They create a boom, and then then when it busts, they fight it, and, you know, you get a bust, and it it fulfills itself. But then they they boom it back up again. Like after the 2008-9 collapse, they went nuts. QEs and everything they could come up with. So we had a dozen years of monetary expansion that were was uncomparable un- and uh, low interest rates that basically money was free for a dozen years. Well, what happened? The stock market went vertical. Sure, it did. Money was free. So investors happened to pick that asset category and then they took it to an extreme. Now it's unwinding and they're going to find another asset category. And I think they have and I think it's going to be the gold side of the equation. Gold and related. Yes, gold has problems from time to time, but basically it, it perseveres. And I think it's going to be the one that comes out on top. To some extent, crypto could be viable because its expansionary capabilities are limited by the quantity of cryptos that could be created. Supposedly, you know, it's, it gets tighter and tighter every year in terms of the quantity that could be mined. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's you know, having some troubles right now. Uh, first off, it's a baby just born, so it's very volatile. Screams up and down, looks great, looks bad, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it'll continue that way for a while. But it's definitely now underperforming gold. We've done a study on comparative values of Bitcoin and gold. And while well, Bitcoin did well from 2017 to about nine months ago, it was a point in time where we measured that the spread difference between the two changed and shifted back favor of gold. And I think it will stay that way for the next several years, at least. And I think the next several years could see gold off the page. And crypto- Interesting. Its value, but you know, certainly because it has a virtue over the other fiat currency. Yeah. They expand government crypto. <laughs> if they ever created a government crypto, don't trust it. The Chinese are going to do it. it, but it's going to be ballistic money too. Yeah. Whereas the private cryptos, at least they have a limitation on this, the, the quantity that can be created. That's the one virtue. I, um, I
0: would like uh, to take a second to plug Monero. Uh, it's the only cryptocurrency with privacy in mind. It was built with privacy from the ground up and it was not built on the Ethereum platform or the Bitcoin platform. Um, Bitcoin or Ethereum, it's basically like having your checking account on the World Wide Web for everyone to view. And uh, as we can see what happened up in Canada uh, with the uh, trucking protesters, uh, they were still able to block those protesters from being able to gain access to their bitcoin wallets so uh monero it's the way to go get monero.org mm-hmm. okay.
1: the uh mm-hmm. no and then once government the, you know, the fed is now considering seriously mm-hmm. uh out with the crypto and so the chinese of course but it's not going to be a uh, free private money or, or private money it's going to be run by the government in which case they can see every every loaf of bread you buy yeah the IRS recently asked for permission to uh, access your account, bank account, in transactions around like four hundred dollars or more. But you know, it was shut down. Yeah. But they talked about it; it was serious. Uh, think if they have a government crypto, there's no issue about it. They can yeah, see. They'll it see
0: everything. everything. they
1: are seeing everything. So you know, welcome to the party. Uh, you know. So uh, <laughs> that's at that point. I think a greater awareness, and including a lot of a lot of crypto people are young. And they're they're effectively having a rebellion to some extent, because when they go for Bitcoin, I'm talking, let's say, the 20 to 30 year olds who've really gotten behind this thing. Uh, In effect, they're making a revolutionary statement because they're saying, in effect, we don't need government money. You know, their parents would tell them, no, no, you got to have government money. The grandfather is a father. But all of a sudden they're saying, no, we don't need government money. Well, that's a heck of a step to make. Because once you make it in that regard, you could make it in some other regard as well. Say, hey, you know, maybe we don't need a government monopoly over uh, defense mechanisms. Or maybe we don't need a government monopoly in making roads, or you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, a, in effect, a revolutionary type movement. And a lot of these crypto people have also gotten interested in silver, which I find very interesting. Uh, the baby of gold. Uh, gold yeah. mama, but silver's the baby. And it's a wild child. Uh, very volatile. But I think that ultimately silver could outpace gold and a lot of the crypto people are acknowledging that so it's going to be a lot of events crisscrossing that don't seem to correlate but they actually do because it's the unwinding of decades of error collectivist imposed monopoly power and imposed error that we've all had to live with and when it comes unwound the errors that it's created uh it will create a lot of forms of rebellion Yeah.
0: So I, I actually went the opposite direction. Um, I was introduced to silver first. Um, I absolutely love it. Um, I love gold as well. There's just something special to me about silver. Um, I I like copper too. It's okay. But you know, of course the price, but um, it's one thing I've actually always been interested in um silver um the, the the community built around it um watching the markets and uh, watching the charts um it's honestly funner for me to watch some of these charts than it is to uh you know watch a football game or yeah.
1: uh, same here
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so what one question a, a lot of my uh viewers are usually uh, pretty novice um I, I would assume at this point you would probably recommend to at least have some silver on hand. Uh, how would you recommend people getting into this um, or expanding their portfolio if they haven't?
1: We don't give investment advice to individuals. We give market analysis of major markets. So if you like silver, for example, and uh, right now it's been trashed the last two weeks. You know, went from twenty-seven dollars down to twenty-three. Gold didn't do that, by the way. Silver went on its own little tantrum. We, we've done a lot of analysis of that, and we think it's probably a false tantrum uh, that's likely to reverse back up. Uh, and we think silver right now is probably the most, it's at a very undervalued level relative to gold as a percentage of the price of gold compared to gold. It's very undervalued in relation to commodity prices in general. And we think it's technically ripe to explode. And I mean go from the 20 $30 range up into the hundreds, Okay, over a span of a couple of years at most. Why,
0: why would that be exactly?
1: Uh, well, simply on a parity basis versus these other assets, it's so far undervalued that if it just caught up to some of its normal parity to gold. For example, silver over the last 40 years plus has four times been in excess of 3% of the price of gold. One time it was 4.5%, one time 6.5%. So at least four times above 3% of the price of gold. Okay, what does that mean? Well, right now gold's trading either side of 1900, let's call it 2000, okay? Silver's at $23. It's like 1.2% of the price of gold. If silver went to 3% of the current price of gold, if gold just sat, stood still, and let's say it's 2000 bucks, silver would be $60. Okay, That alone would be monstrous. But gold's not just gonna sit here. We think gold is gonna trend a lot higher. Uh, in the in the next year or so, as people try to escape from assets that are imploding, and to some extent, now this is, follow this logic: the Fed is threatened to fight inflation. That would you would presume, therefore, get out of gold, get out of silver, get out of commodities, because that's what they call inflation—commodity inflation. They don't call it inflation when the S and P goes from six hundred something to four thousand eight hundred. That's okay. They printed that higher through monetary expansion, but they don't label that inflation. That's good inflation to them. So once they stated this goal last summer at a Fed meeting in June and now are implementing the goal. What's dropped? Goals risen. Goals risen from the 1700s up until you traded over 2000 again recently. What's the stock market done? NASDAQ 100 is down 22% from the high of December. It's not been benefited by this talk of fighting inflation. S&P's down to about 10%. Bond market's been imploding. So if you own muni bonds or high yield corporate debt, you're getting kicked real hard. So these are assets that the Fed really didn't want to break down, but are breaking down because of their policy. So as they cause those assets to break down, government debt prices, for example, the bond market, at some point, they're gonna do a whiplash in policy. They're going to have to because that's their only role in life is basically to defend government and to maintain stability, but particularly in certain asset categories. So while they're trying to bring commodities down, which, by the way, Bloomberg Commodity Index is up 30 percent on the year. So it's not too intimidated by the Fed policy. What's intimidated are the bloated assets that investors are moving out of and moving into commodity and commodity related assets. So is the Fed now starts to panic and they will shortly because they've now gotten an economic metric the other day about first GDP actually being negative. First quarter of GDP is expected to be up one percent, it was down 1.4. And now they get an imploding stock market. And if all of a sudden they sense that public confidence, investor confidence, asset manager confidence is running out the door, They're going to have to come to the defense once again of those asset categories, or they're going to see them implode, along with the economic data points that will go with those markets to the downside. So we think the Fed's is whiplash from extreme monetary policy now to extreme tight. And I bet within a month or two, they're going to have to be hemming and hawing, especially inside their meetings, about what do we do now? You know, do we really raise another half percent like they threatened to do this coming week? Uh, Or do they put out some kind of cautious terminology, like at the next rate rise, where they go up a half a percent, as everybody expects, but they put out a cautionary note about we're still data sensitive. (laughs) So, but if they whiplash again, back from loose to tight, back to loose, academia is going to say, you guys don't know what you're doing. This hasn't been working and so it wouldn't surprise me within a year or two that there's talk about, you know, we don't need the Fed anymore. We need gold-backed currency. And at that point, uh, that's an intellectual rebellion right there against government. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me that happens.
0: That's that's really interesting. So to, to answer that question, people should get... Oh, Silver, firm- I'm sorry familiar familiar with the markets they they should listen to um somebody say in your position um and pretty much judge for themselves
1: well it it depends on the investor investor every investor is different some people you know millionaires some people got ten thousand bucks they could put it that's all you know and and therefore the issue of do i use leverage do i do futures with leverage or do i use do i do call options uh, buy a uh, year out and call options on SLV, which is an ETF of silver bullion. Uh, and therefore, my risk is limited to what I just spent, but it could go to zero if it doesn't cross my strike price, you know, all these things. There's all kinds of variable ways to invest in silver, including just buying it physically. So it, I can't answer that question. It depends on each person. Uh, I have my own choices as to what I do with my money, but I'm different from my subscribers. I can't tell them I can just only analyze silver. And our suggestion is pay attention to silver because we think it's a slingshot situation that could catapult out of here in an extraordinary way on a percentage basis, which will definitely therefore impact the price of silver miners, the price of bullion, the price of etc. etc. Uh, but pay attention to that market. We think it's vastly undervalued. And we think that what the Fed's doing and what we'll have to do soon because of the shift in economic metrics and the shift in the markets they don't want to go down, is revert back to a loose policy. In fact, the Bank of Japan, for example, has adamantly said, we are not going to go tight tight at all. We're going to stay extremely loose. So there's one major central bank that's not playing the game. The ECB is sort of in between, in terms of what they're doing in Europe, the Fed and the Bank of Japan. But once the Fed realizes they've got a disaster on their hands, they're gonna to have to revert back to what they normally do, pump, pump, pump. In which case, who's the beneficiary then? that? Technically, gold and silver would be the prime beneficiaries.
0: Interesting. So what, what would we see in uh, the, the gold or silver market uh, right, right before it's gonna to go to the moon?
1: I would throw out a number for you right now, and this is being a little high. Get back up with 26 and silver again. Assume it's going to leave the recent trading range, which has been from 22 to 30 over the last year and a half. Okay. Remember a couple of years ago, it was trading at 10 to 15. area. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's, it's still up there, but it's, it's definitely pulled back from its highs of summer of 2020 and the high it made in January, 2021, both are $30. Uh, So it's acting like a a tired child wants to go down. But gold's not acting that way. Gold's holding fairly stoutly. So are the gold miners. They've had a pullback recently, but they haven't dropped like silver has. So I think silver's having a tantrum that's not justified. And I think it's going to be, they'll look back and say, ooh, that was an error. And silver will suddenly whiplash itself back into a positive mode. Not just in terms of where it's going on the upside, but in terms of its relative performance to gold we could see that shifting very easily to a situation where silver, silver suddenly goes from that 1%, 1.2% of the price of gold to three or four or five, in which case it's price goes parabolic. So I'd say if you get silver back up to 26 again, you better wake up. You get gold back over 2000 again, right now it's, it was closed Friday at 1911, okay? Get back over 2000 again, expect it to lift off again. Uh, I think what scared people is the Fed policy change but if you'll actually look at the action of the markets, especially gold, since they threatened that policy change, gold was in the 17, 1800s. Now it's been back over 2000 again. It's not intimidated. And it has good reason not to be for the reasons I just explained. If all these other asset categories start to implode, it must be defended by the Fed. OK, uh, mm-hmm. what's the beneficiary going to be to the new round of monetary stimulus, gold?
0: Interesting. So you you were mentioning something earlier about how you had never seen signs in, in the market um, that are basically impending doom
1: mm-hmm. at this point. Sure. Yeah, since I've been in the markets it would be since 1975, I've seen many bear markets in the stock market. In fact, we've called all of them. Uh, MSA has uh, 2000 top, the 2007 top, etc., etc. But I've never seen a stock market bubble so big. And when the bigger, the bubble, the bigger, the break. Okay. The 2007 top, which was a real estate bubble, as you recall, the stock market really hadn't been ballistic at that point. Uh, in fact, all it done is return back to price highs. It had seen in 2000 up in the 15 on the S and P, for example, uh, Yeah, the bear market was disastrous and had real-world consequences, but it really was trivial compared to the bubble we've created now. So as that market comes unwound, then I look at other markets like the T-bond market, which for like 30 years has been in a vertical rise of price and lower in rates. It's broken that trend now. A 30-year trend was just broken, just broken. It's not old. It's fresh on the downside. Uh, When I look at things like muni bonds, Now, you know, municipal bonds, a lot of investors plow their money into that. It's safe, tax tax advantages, et cetera, et cetera. Or they buy high-yield corporate debt, which is high-yielding so-called junk bonds, private bonds. These markets are imploding because the Fed is threatening to cut off their water flow. Well, that's not what the Fed wanted to see. They wanted to see commodities come down, and that's not occurring. So those are points of chaos I've never seen before in unison, these Type of markets breaking from very high levels through very aged uptrends. So, meaning a lot of error and excess has been created over the last dozen years, especially by prior monetary excess. When it comes unwound, it will be savage because it's a lot of error compounded on error, compounded on error over a dozen years straight. On the other hand, if you look at the commodity complex, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, for example, now trading at 130 it was two and three times that price decade ago so it's yes it's come up off its low dramatically but it's nowhere near highs it saw in 2008 and 2011. It's just it's just been born from the depths it's like a beach ball that's been submerged underwater especially since 2016 through 2020 and the beach ball has been released and it just popped above surface and so asset managers even asset managers who aren't gold bugs Ray Dalio's of the world, for example, have said, hey, listen, quit paying attention to the price of your stock. Pay attention to the underlying value of your money unit, which is degrading rapidly. And these asset managers are piecemealing a lot of their allocations from the stock market and they're moving it over into commodities and commodity related stocks like oil stocks, fertilizer stocks. We recommended in the summer and fall of 2020, very depressed fertilizer companies. They've tripled since. Now we have a fertilizer crisis. Somehow the markets knew it back then. There was something coming and they broke out. And other investors who were inclined to stay with the stock market are suddenly having doubts. They got to move it somewhere. Government bond market doesn't look too safe. It used to be a safe place to put your money. Now it's not. There's only one category left. That's broadly commodities, but especially gold and silver. And so as this flow, reversal of flow occurs in stocks, it's a reversal of flow in the commodity arena as well. And these things will have real world implications. Do you remember going to Costco a year, and a quarter ago, a year and a half ago, and having pe- seeing people with their grocery carts full of paper towel rolls? because <laughs> We had a paper towel and yeah. paper shortage, okay? People have learned about shortages. They learned back in the COVID crisis. But then it was just paper, okay? What if it's now beef? What if it's now butter, corn? We have a crop crisis coming up probably globally, partly because of the Russia thing, because Russia produces a lot of wheat. So does Ukraine, by the way, a lot of wheat. Yeah. I think I understand that uh, Arab states and uh, Lebanon right now has got a food crisis, for example. Lots of parts of Africa have food crisis A lot of their grain comes from there. But grain is also used to feed cattle. The crop report issued by the USDA, Department of Agriculture at the end of March, of planting intentions by soybean, corn, and wheat farmers in the US. You would think because those markets went ballistic since 2020 in price, they doubled in price. So if you're a farmer, naturally, what are you gonna do? You're gonna increase your acreage, right? That's not what happened. It was basically flat intentions for this coming year. If one of the grains went up like 4% increase in acreage, one went down about 4% in planting intentions and one went, uh, I think up 1%. So in net effect, the grain crops in the US is no real increase in, in planting intentions. Hmm. Normally a free market would do that. Why? Because fertilizer costs are off the page they're so high that it's caused all kinds of problems, especially for farmers' ability to plant crops. And hence it could affect what? Yields. So if you get well, some kind of bad crop here in terms of weather, but also low yields because of the lack of fertilizer, not just here, but globally. And natural gas plays into that. We have natural gas prices exploding in the European side of the world. And here they've gone up quite a bit. They're going to go up a lot more in our assessment. Natural gas is needed to produce fertilizer. In fact, the uh, UK government, I think uh, there was a, a fertilizer company there that shut down production sometime in the last six months. <laughs> Cost factors. So the UK government went in and paid that company to, to open the doors again and start producing. with taxpayer money to keep them open. So if you have a fertilizer, again, these domino effects that don't seem to be related yet are where government policies have impacted, for instance, the production of natural gas or the availability of natural gas. Uh, and suddenly Russia's now cut off, uh, what, Poland? Uh, and uh, No, Bulgaria and... I forgot, two European countries, they've cut off gas supplies. They might cut off more of them. Uh, Putin has... It's a big weapon he's got. You know, and then once he finds that he can ship more of it to China and India, as a new customers, he can cut off Europe. But anyway... Those domino effects are all collectively coming together. The things you didn't think about, the natural gas affects fertilizer, fertilizer affects yields, crop sizes, and all of a sudden, even though crop prices have doubled, you don't have an increase in acreage. So you can have a food crisis, a food shortage, and once that notion even crosses the mind of the American public, what's gonna happen? You're gonna take anticipatory actions you're going to buy more beef at the store. You're going to buy a freezer. So you're going to help exacerbate the shortage that, you know, otherwise is going to occur, but make it speed it up a bit. All these events could occur. And if it ever occurs regarding food, that's when suddenly it becomes politically tumultuous. With consequences I can't even imagine.
0: Yeah, that's... Uh that's, that's really telling. Um, well, one thing I would like to get out of the way, um, I, I'm core, I, I'm sure this is not something new for you. Um, how controlled is the market? And what I mean by that is how, how much of this is pre-planned manipulation, um, versus, especially,
1: silver, especially silver you're talking about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, I buy the argument that, yes, some large banks that are all part of the Federal Reserve system, you know, uh, have probably been manipulating the silver market or trying to manipulate the silver market. Okay, Uh, they will lose. Reality will win out. Okay, Ayn Rand was right. Okay, we're in part three of Atlas Shrugged, no matter what government thinks they can do and all the power they have and all their agencies and friends of the government, large banks and so forth. Might try to suppress this price or that price, but ultimately reality will win out. If they if they were winning that game, then how come gold is it trading now at two thousand bucks, two thousand twenty, and again this year? And back when I started my career, it was at thirty bucks. Okay, apparently they weren't able to suppress it. In fact, during the big bull market in gold from the nineteen seventy six low, gold was one hundred and three dollars. Had a pullback into nineteen seventy six from nineteen seventy five high. And went up to $850 by early 1980 in a span of three and a half years, okay? 103 to 850. During that rally, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, dumped tons of gold in auctions into the gold market at prices below the actual traded price, to, both to try to suppress the price of gold. And initially in the bull trend, when they dumped gold like that, you could see a sell-off. Did it reverse and go back up? Finally, later in the bull trend, they ceased because it was having no impact. Tons of gold, openly dumped. I've forgotten the, the number, but it's an awesome number of tons. Far more than whatever Bank of America might be doing in terms of trying to limit the rise in the price of silver. Ultimately, they will fail, because there is an underlying economic reality, and it will eat them up, just as reality is going to eat up the central banks. of the the developed world, the ECB, BOJ, and the Fed. They're going to be eaten up by the reality they created, and they're going to have to go back to printing again or or watch the whole thing implode, which they will not do. And so, again, what's the beneficiary going to be? It's going to be gold and silver, despite their efforts to control it. So, yes, I'll, I'll agree. There probably have been those actions. But on the other hand, somebody keeps buying this stuff. Probably not them, but these pullbacks are being bought aggressively. You can see it from time to time where they try to bang gold down to a certain level. For instance, the March 2021 pullback low was in the 1600s, high 1600s, after having been above 2000 in summer of 2020. But every time they tried to bang it down in 2021, back through that early March low, they couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, they tried repeatedly and the Fed it, it usually would be correlated with a Fed statement. The Fed's threat to, we're going to cut back on our, our purchases, we're going to raise rates, etc. And all those sell-offs tend to be correlated to the, those monthly Fed meetings. It didn't work. Gold, gold really went back to its high again. So I'm arguing yes, that might be true, manipulation, but it will not succeed. So
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems as though, at least the, the the entirety of the precious metals market, is really the backbone of everything. Um, I I know uh, agriculture, is really. I mean that it, it feeds all of us. Um, you know the 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 price of corn goes up, and then the price of everything else goes up. Um, But it seems just from at least the financial institution side of things, that that's something that they always keep in their back pocket, no matter what.
1: And they will, uh, ultimately, there will be academicians and people in positions of political and central bank power around the world. Probably ECB will be first. There's a lot of uh, gold bugs over there, especially in Germany, who have respect for the metal. In fact, as I understand, Germans have retracted all their gold from Western vaults over the recent years back to their own vaults. The French already did that. Uh, the Russians are backing. Uh, they want to back the ruble with gold. Uh, you can hate Putin all you want, but, you know, if he backs the ruble with gold, it's going to create some stability for the ruble. Uh, in fact, it's, you know, the ruble crashed recently and then shot back up again because of those events. So, uh <clears throat> it wouldn't shock me that the Chinese ultimately go to a gold-backed currency. Uh, And when that happens here, and then again here, pretty soon it'll become a trend because they'll see the stability that comes from that. Uh, And Nixon was wrong. (laughs) Uh, Democrats will be able to say that. Nixon was wrong, okay? Uh, (laughs) uh, And ultimately, the events that occur will generate concern about the viability of the policies that have been going on for at least 50 years, if not more. We need something else. And there's enough smart people out there, and they're not just Austrian economists, who'll say, hey, you know, that tends to work. And once they start to aggregate toward that, it could quickly snap in that direction. It wouldn't surprise me. I'm not sure the U.S. will be at the beginning of that move, but uh, at some point they will be, because of investor and analyst and, and academician demand that they go that way.
0: Wow. That's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, I, like I said, I, I was introduced to silver when I was, I believe 17, 18 years old. Um, and it just fallen in love with it. Um,
1: Did you keep any of it? <laughs> well,
0: un- unfortunately, it wasn't a terrible boating accident, and it's at the oh. bottom of a lake.
1: Oh, we got to go figure it out.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Of, of of course, I I definitely have um, diversified. Uh, I I try not to hold Federal Reserve notes as much as I, you know, can possibly make that true.
1: Yeah, like von Nisa said, what the the only people that could take a valuable commodity like paper and make it worthless.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it, it's, it's been really interesting because ever, ever since I've been in this community, I, I hear, um, you know, it, it's coming, it's coming. And it, it finally looks like it's here. Um, you know, the, the market's fallen out from itself. Um, I know there's a lot of speculation across uh, all different platforms. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, conspiracy minded people. I don't know. I'm half and half on a lot of that, but it it definitely if 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 they are trying to collapse it on purpose, I'm just not sure what else they would be doing right Why now. By
1: the really? collapse, because they don't control reality, and they've proven they don't control reality. Yeah, reality. And when it comes back to bite them, it'll bite them big. Uh, and I also argue this that this trend will not be incremental. You know, most most bull and bear trends are. You know, they, they take sometimes a decade to fulfill themselves. Uh, I think this next few years, maybe even shorter than that, can be so dramatic in terms of certain assets imploding and certain assets exploding, that it will be chaos theory, where you don't go from, you you go from quiet and calm to sudden eruption or collapse. In this case, in the precious, on the monetary metals, excuse me, I'd rather use that term than precious metals because I don't quite, quite include platinum with this, or palladium. To some extent, they're more industrial. And you'll notice that platinum has not been moving like gold over the last several years. It hasn't gone back to its highs in 2011 at all. So it's a monetary metals that are moving. That word should be emphasized. We've got a monetary crisis. It is finally gonna come unwound. And again, we're in part three of Atlas Shrugged, A is A. And it should happen quickly, not incrementally.
0: Well, on that, I think we're going to wrap up. Um, Honestly, it was a tremendous pleasure, and I I would like to get you back on,
1: Um, Jake, Nisa. It was fun,
0: especially with uh, you know a lot of this uh, market volatility going on. um, You know, I would definitely like to supply my listeners with uh, some of the most accurate information, and uh, I know you have a a uh, a history of predicting. And, and being incredibly accurate. Uh, of course, nobody's 100%. However,
1: nobody's really, 100%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the recent drop in silver surprised me a little bit, but it doesn't change our, our major outlook. Yeah,
0: no. Yeah. So So um, just let let people know where they can find you um, and uh, pretty much uh, how, how they can uh, keep in touch with what you have going on.
1: Our website is OliverMSA.com, MSA for Momentum Structural Analysis, OliverMSA.com. And you can go there and explore our work, our uh, methodology, why we have the methodology, uh, our background, and so forth.
0: Perfect. And uh, yeah, I have made sure to include that link in the episode description. Um, it will be attached to uh, wherever you are listening to this. Um, so make sure and go follow their webpage. I actually was playing around on it before, uh, we started this and it's, it's a pretty cool website. So, so I really enjoyed it. And, uh, let's see here. I want to thank you again for coming on. Like I said, it was a great pleasure and, uh, hold on for just one sec and, uh, we, we will get wrapped up and get out of here Okay. Uh, for an- anyone, uh, still hanging out and listening. Thank you for making it to this part in the episode. It's always a great pleasure. Uh, Make sure to hit that subscribe and like button. And uh, until next time, stay free.